This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Good morning. Can we keep that music going through my preaching? That was awesome. Well, I am uh, Mark McNally. I'm the director of outreach here and uh, one of the preachers on staff, and I'm excited to continue this series that we're in uh, called Down to Earth. Now, this week, uh, those of you news junkies might have noticed this. Uh, Those of you that didn't, uh, we got the Forbes most powerful, 74 most powerful people in the world list out today. Number one, Vladimir Putin, okay, or Putin, however you want to pronounce that. And uh, Billionaire businessman turned president-elect, Donald Trump, number two. Excuse me, I'm fighting some congestion. Uh, And then the chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel. Give it up for the the woman getting in the top three, huh? Yeah, give it up. So I saw this come out this week, and I started thinking to myself, the three most powerful people, as given to us by Forbes magazine, are all presidents slash chancellors in large nations across our planet. And it got me to thinking, what do we see in terms of greatness? How does the world define it? How do we measure it? And what I, what I noticed was that even in my own life, as I um, was growing up and living the American dream and had no semblance of faith in my life or God in my life whatsoever, I noticed that the way to greatness was going up. It was an ascent. It was something that happened through achievements. So that I understood that I needed to rise uh, educationally. I needed to rise Edu- uh, uh, vocationally. I needed to rise financially. I needed to be in the right social circles to go the places that I wanted to go. And I, I understand that the culture that we live in, even those of us that regularly attend church and profess Christ as our Savior, the air we breathe is that the way to greatness is an ascent, that the way to greatness is to go upward and to achieve and to be noticed, and yet we read a scripture like today and we enter into a season where we celebrate the birth of a child who we believe to be God, and we see a different picture, don't we? We see this picture. Look at the baby Jesus, isn't he so cute? Looks about six pounds, eight ounces there, doesn't he? Some of you got that reference. And we see that God, when he came into the world, when greatness, when true greatness comes into the world, From God's perspective, it came in the humility of a human birth, of of not only a vulnerable human baby, but born to an unmarried peasant teenage girl. And we have to start asking ourselves, if you've been around church a lot of times, you've heard the phrase upside down kingdom. Well, what does that really mean? And how does the upside down kingdom actually become a reality in my life? How does it shape my life? How does it form the way I think and the way I feel and the way I act? Well, this scripture that we look look into today, Isaiah 9, it's a famous passage. It's one that's read often throughout the Christmas season because it is talking about how God brings greatness into our lives. It's talking about how God enters into the world. And the way that God enters into the world, you see, is very important for us to know because it gives us a sign. It gives us a clue as to how God enters into each human life, each one of our lives today. So 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the words that were read by Asa, by the way, thank you for reading the scripture today, Asa. And those 
700 years passed, and God's people waited. Now, the good news, we call it the gospel, is that we no longer have to wait, right? The Christ child has been born. So the things that we see that God wants to do, that he is doing among his people, that we learn from this passage, we have access to today. Let's look at two things from those first five verses of Isaiah 9. Two conditions that when they become a reality in our heart and in our life, we become wide open for God to come in with the greatness and glory that he can in our lives. The first is that God comes when his people are humbled. Now you see in the first verse of that passage, it talks about Naphtali and Zebulun. Now these were two tribes of the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom kind of broke off from the southern kingdom. There was infighting, imagine that, even among God's people. And so on the northern side of the kingdom, they were really exposed. They were exposed to foreign invasion and oppression. And what Isaiah is doing, and is he's looking at these two tribes in the northern kingdom. He's saying, because of your disobedience, you will be overthrown by Assyria. That They will come and they will oppress you. You will be captives. But in the midst of that darkness, you will be, it says literally, you will be humbled. But in the midst of that darkness, you will see a great light. You see, the southern kingdom had Jerusalem in it, and Jerusalem was kind of the, the Mecca, right? That's where God's temple was built, uh, the tribe of Judah. All of that is, is in the southern kingdom. So you get the northern kingdom, and, and you've got the way of the Gentiles as referenced there. And what we would see as the northern kingdom in our um, kind of understanding uh, here would be a, a backwoods, backwater kind of country, a, a redneck people, a people that were um, kind of inbreeding with the foreign powers that were coming in. They were worshiping other gods and God asked them not to do that. And so here is a place in the Northern Kingdom that we would not see to be the most likely place that God would want to come in with the gospel and come in with the ministry of Jesus. But yet that is exactly where God comes. He comes to the Northern Kingdom. He says, it's there that you, in the darkness, that you will see a great life. So why is that important to us? How does that translate into how God works in our life? Here's where it, it does. In our circumstances, whether the circumstances of our life are brought on by our own sin and our own selfishness and our own self-sufficiency or whether they're brought on from outside factors, the way that we truly become receptive to the, to the God of the universe is through humility. We become humble. We, we realize that we are in the darkness until the light of Christ shines into our lives. There's a very important verse in Proverbs where it says that God resists, some translations say, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Peter, the apostle, and also James would, re would refer, they would quote Proverbs 3 straight out, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus would teach in Luke 14, 11, he would teach that those who would exalt themselves, we looked at that earlier, those that would ascend, those that would want to be noticed, those that would go for fame, fortune, glory in their own life with their own accomplishments will be humbled. But those that will humble themselves will be exalted. This is a principle in the upside down kingdom that we've got to fully not only believe as a concept, but we've got to let it invade and embed itself into our hearts. Are we truly humble today? 
and our circumstances, you see that our circumstances are such that they are an opportunity to humble us. Now, some of you are thinking out there, I've got some circumstances that don't seem much like an opportunity. I want to kind of get rid of them. I want to kind of see if I can pray them away or, but maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we waste crisis after crisis after crisis in our, and challenge in our life. When what they have the potential to do is to bring us to our knees in desperation for God. Jobs for Life is a class that we are going into session number 10 here on campus in, and in session number nine, the students list their roadblocks. That's a very common terminology in Jobs for Life, roadblocks. What are your roadblocks? It's not a better word to define it. Uh, for greatness. How has God uh, created you to be not only in your vocational life, but in your relationship with God and others? And these are the roadblocks that were listed by the students in the last Jobs for Life. Childhood abuse, teenage abuse, spousal abuse, drugs, alcohol, hopelessness, rape, felonies, depression, homelessness, fear, prison, and divorce. Now, I've read that list probably going on 15 to 20 times, and I still teared up a little bit because whenever you just really let the weight of those roadblocks kind of bear down on you, you realize, man, how are they ever going to move beyond that? How do they, amen? How do they ever go from being defined by the things on that list to the be, being defined by what God would have for their life? Because we understand that in this scripture, the people of the Northern Kingdom were just as hopeless and helpless and scared and oppressed as the people in our Jobs for Life class. But it was in that darkness that a great light would shine. And so what Jobs for Life does is it tries to speak into even the challenges and, and the roadblocks that they face and say, no, 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 no. You, you see, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you as a child of God to be driven to your knees in desperation for the only power and the only greatness that can really pull you up and out of the pit. And that's the power of God. So how humble are you today? When you get a difficult circumstance in your life, do you look at it? Do you begin to resent it? Do you pray and plead for God to deliver you from it? And in a sense, that's not all bad to pray for that part of it. But in the midst of that, do you take the opportunity for life's challenges to humble you and prepare you for God to work in your life? The second thing we see in here is God comes when his people are helpless. Now, we live in one of the most affluent and uh, able countries in the history of the human world. We are not terribly helpless in many areas of our life. But in the least, the spiritual sense, we have got to become utterly and totally helpless. And the reference that Isaiah gives us in verse 4 here is the reference of Gideon. Those of you um, that know your Bibles, in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, there's a, a famous story of where Gideon, who was in a small tribe, and he wasn't even great among that tribe, he gets chosen by God to be the judge. This is before the kings. And, and Gideon um, is given an army, and the oppressors of their day were the Midianites. And it is said that there were hundreds of thousands of the Midianite soldiers, in the, but Israel was being oppressed by this nation, and Gideon was to deliver them. 
So it says in the story that he puts 32,000 troops together and God looks down on this uh, 32,000 versus hundreds of thousands and he says, uh, hey Gideon, we're gonna need to pare your numbers down and, and here's why. Because if you go in, even though you're outnumbered, if you go in with that many, it's possible that my people will think that you accomplished this and they accomplished this. And you won't have accomplished it unless I'm with you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pare him down. So he pairs him down from 32,000 to 10,000. And God looks back down over Gideon and his strategy and the army again. And he says, uh, still too many. Even with 10,000, outnumbered 10, 20, 30 to one, there could be some possibility that you and my people say, yay for us, we did it. We defeated our enemy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of the men down to the, down to the water and those that cup the water with their hands and drink out of it, I want you to take them to battle. Everybody else that just gets down and, and drinks straight from the water, send them home. Turns out only 300 drank from the cup of their hands. So 300 go in battle against hundreds of thousands. And there are details in this. If you want to read Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8 that I can't get into, God asks them to do some kind of silly things as they approach the, the battle and the soldiers of Midian. And the soldiers of Midian turn on each other and they flee and the 300 in Gideon's army win the day. That's what Isaiah is referring to here. One little part of verse four. And when we dig into that, what's Isaiah saying? Isaiah is saying is, until you understand just how helpless that you are to defeat the enemies external and internal, and for most of us here today, we don't have a tremendous amount of hundreds of thousands of troops bearing down on us to face. Many of our battles and our enemies are internal. Those internal battles that you have to face until you look at them, I wanna give you a perspective here, until you look at them as if you have 300 soldiers going up against hundreds of thousands of soldiers, you're bound to think you had something to do with your victory if it does happen. And you didn't, and I never have. I struggle with this. I want to give myself a lot of credit when I overcome in an area of my life or you know, beat back some sort of you know, roadblock that I, that I have had in my life. But I have to understand, and every one of us has to understand that we can't do anything we put our minds to. You can do whatever you put your mind to. No, we can't. Especially in, in the eternal sense of the idea, especially in the relational sense, especially in the expanding God's kingdom sense. No, you, no, you can't. And no, I can't. So we have to become utterly and totally helpless as we face our enemies, as we face our challenges. You see, AA and NA is a sort of quasi-religious uh, organization, uh, but they based AA their steps off of the book of James, so they started in a good place, and their first step, uh, anybody know the first step of AA and NA, the 12 steps? I'm gonna fire those off. No? We admitted that we were powerless over our addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. Now take substance abuse out of the picture, as as much as you can, take drugs and alcohol out of your mind at this moment and look at that phrase. We admitted that, that we were powerless over our enemies, 
that our lives had become unmanageable, that we were utterly helpless to overcome in our lives. So for those of you here that you came today and you've got a sense in, inside of you that does feel helpless, that you have been humbled by your circumstances, I want you to know you're in a good place, okay? You're in a very good place. You're in the house of God. You're, you're seeking to let the light of Christ shine into the darkness of your life. Praise God. I've prayed all week that today would be a day that Christ comes into your life with the full force of the army of Gideon. But those of you who are here today and you just don't sense that much really helplessness, you've got your retirement, you've got a comfortable house, you've got relatively good relationships. Helpless, like what is he talking about? Here's what I would plead for you to do. I would plead for you today. Here, when you go home, when you're alone, your head hits the pillow. Every one of us has that moment. I don't care who you are, rich or poor, ethnicity, your head hits the pillow at times, and it's you and God. And if you don't believe in God, it's you and yourself, and it actually is God. You just haven't recognized it yet. And I want to plead with you. Ask yourself, all of this self-sufficiency, am I really as helpless as the preacher this morning and the text from Scripture says that I am. Ask yourself, is it a house of cards? Is your good, polished, safe, comfortable, secure American life at the end of the day a house of cards? I want to read the next two verses that these set up, and these are the more famous verses of the passage. In Isaiah chapter 9, we come to verses 6 and 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. There's four titles, there's four attributes that are given to Jesus by Isaiah, again, 700 years before his arrival. I want to look at one of those, each one of those briefly. Isaiah says Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Now, we live in a culture, and we've been formed also to kind of at least question authority. I think there's a growing sense in our culture, in our nation, where we not only question authority, we kind of just initially push back against authority. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't like to receive advice. And when it comes to God, we've got to see that we can trust him. We've got to see him as a counselor. We've got to see him as a trusted advisor. Somebody who not only has authority in our life to tell us what to do, regardless of whether it's good or bad for us, kind of just do as I say, not as I do sort of a thing. And we've had those kind of authority figures in our life, right? But no, we can, we can trust this counselor. Isaiah is saying Jesus is the person whose word you can trust. You can listen to him. He lists him as a mighty God. 
as a mighty God, we understand that that baby that we looked at earlier, that really cute little picture, and, and we see the nativity scenes throughout the season, is the creator of the universe. And at any time throughout scripture, Isaiah in chapter six of Isaiah and John in Revelation and multiple times the apostles, whenever they went up the Mount of Transfiguration, when we see humanity enter into the presence of God, they fall on their face as, a, as if they are dead. There's an aspect of Jesus that Isaiah is trying to tap us into that is massive, that is holy, that is the creator of everything that we can see. And he's wanting us to see that, wow, Jesus is, he's my authority, I can listen, but he is the creator of everything. And I've got to see him as my God. The third he lists is Jesus is the everlasting father. Now, I was confused by this. I was like, okay, well, wait, we're Trinitarian. We've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now Isaiah is telling me that Jesus is the father. I'm, I'm like totally confused. And so what he's saying here, that it, though, is, is the attribute of fatherhood covers the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In this sense of what Isaiah is prophesying that Jesus would become the everlasting father is that he would become our provider. That as a good, good father, he will come and, and most of us have actually, take that back, none of us has had a father who has been completely and totally perfect in, in their relationship with us. But Jesus has been, will be, always in our life a good father, a good provider. Jesus is the prince of peace. I love the passage of this scripture at the end where it talks of fairness and justice. Now, we don't see the fullness of the kingdom of God yet. When King Jesus sits fully on his throne, there will be fairness and justice. We see a world plagued with injustice. And we see all kinds of suffering and we see all kinds of greed and we see all kinds of sin and selfishness that we will not see under the complete and total reign of Jesus. So Isaiah is looking even beyond the first coming of Christ where a sense of peace will come into the hearts of his people and he's looking beyond that and he's saying, no, when the kingdom of God is fully in force, Jesus, King Jesus will be on a throne and his kingdom will be at complete and total and utter peace and evil and sin and Satan and death will be removed and judged forever. So how can this incarnation, how can this Jesus who Isaiah has just lifted up to us that he's described for us, and, and Isaiah's also given us a little bit of a, a hint into how the people of God at his time can be so closely related to the experiences that we have still today as God's people. Like how does that hit us right between the eyes of our hearts? Well, the incarnation has the ability that I think no other Christian teaching or doctrine has. It has the ability to impact us through seeing the humility of God himself. That like I said, God has not only come to tell us to do something that he wouldn't be willing to do himself. Dorothy Sayers was a British uh, writer, and she wrote uh, fiction, but she also wrote some nonfiction. And this is a quote that I came by this week that I just love. <clears throat> the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall into a condition 
of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work, and the lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation and defeat and despair and death. He was born in poverty, suffered infinite pain, all for us, and he thought it well worth his while. I was thinking about that this week, the fact that God in heaven chose to come, the greater chose to come and enter into the lesser. How amazing is that? Anytime intellectually, socially, economically, racially, whatever you want to say, in a, in a culture where the greater comes into the lesser, there's a, there's a level of condescension in that usually, isn't there? There's a level that we see is just still disconnected when the greater comes into the lesser. But when the greater comes into the lesser and it's with empathy and it's with an equality of soul, there is something divine and there is something beautiful and there is something pure about that. I saw a picture of that this week. If we could show Caitlin and Kinsley, this is uh, my wife and, and stepdaughter. They are doing sight words right now. Kinsley is five and she's learning sight words and she's going through them. A video was posted on her site. Uh, it's doing a great job with it. And as I was preparing for this message, I watched that and I thought to myself, that's a picture right there of the greater entering into the lesser in love, in connection, in equality, though Kinsley can't read as well as Caitlin. But she was with her at her level, even with the greater capacity of learning and knowledge and reading. In that moment, she had entered into Kinsley's world and they had connected and you could see Kinsley responding to that. To give you a pet metaphor in this, it would be like how we enter into our pet's world. Now, I'm not a huge pet guy. I get a lot of grief for that. Uh, secretly, I've been known to kind of love on our, our little chihuahua. But imagine how we get down into the, the world of our pets, especially those that really love their pets. They get down on the carpet, and, and it's like the, those pets and that pet owner, there's nothing else going on in the world, right? So the pet owner has to enter into the world of the pet, but the pet can never go to a theology class with the pet owner and discuss the meaning of life, right? It's ridiculous. But yet there's this connection that happens when the greater enters into the lesser and does so with empathy and compassion and love and a desire to connect in the deepest way. And to do that, the greater has to limit itself. It has to limit much of what it could hold on to. That is what God did for each and every one of us. When you look at the Christ child, you are looking at a God with capacity that none of us could ever remotely dream of understanding. His ways are so much greater than our ways and his mind so infinitely greater than ours. But in an act of divine love, he came into our world and he came to connect 
with you and with me in a relationship forever. I want to ask you today, if you have known God in that way, if you know him in that way today, would you worship him? Would you worship him with a passion and an awe and a wonder and a devotion like you never have before? One of the things I love in worship services more than anything else is when I see people humble themselves in a community of faith and come forward. And next door in the traditional services, many come forward and they kneel at the altar. Here in this building, in the morning, people come to the prayer wall and they come over here and they say, you know what? In public worship, I don't care what people think, I'm gonna humble myself before God. On Sunday night, we have pillows that run at church at the center up the front. And there are more and more people coming and just throwing their, you've seen it, right? Jimmy and Shane, it's throwing their knees on the pillows and their face on the stage while the music's playing. And they don't care. Are you ready to just not care about anything but whether or not God is gonna come in to your life in full force and defeat your enemies? If you're ready for that, humble yourself, see your helplessness and receive this baby, this child, this kid that we celebrate as your king and your Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for um, your divine scripture, the fact that we can open up texts written so far before when you chose to come and just be in awe that you would do all that you have done to show yourself to us, to offer yourself to us. Thank you that that child that was born was a child that was given to us. Thank you for the gift of salvation. We pray and ask that you would help us to receive it today. Receive it again, receive it for the first time. For your glory and for our joy. Amen.